Hello and welcome to the Innovation Book Club, the podcast that makes sense of the big ideas that drive creativity and innovation. We're your hosts, Alex Drago and Weiss Bassard, and we believe that while there's never been a greater need for new ideas, perspectives and solutions, understanding exactly what innovation is and how it works has never been more difficult or confusing. So our purpose for this podcast is clear. In each episode, we take an important text from the innovation field, deconstruct it, and then talk through the key ideas to help you develop a more innovative mindset. The focus of this episode is Warren Berger's book, A More Beautiful Question. Uh, Warren Berger is an American journalist who has written uh, numerous articles primarily on innovation, creativity, design, mass media, pop culture. The main idea of the book is questioning as the power to lead you to break through innovation. And the book itself has been divided into several chapters where he uh, starts with uh, why uh, questioning itself. He proceeds then uh, uh, to the power of uh, questioning, the power of inquiry. And then afterwards, he talks about why we stop questioning. Um, after that, we, he talks about a, a model he created, uh, which is the why, what, if, and how you could question, you could use in your questioning uh, process. And eventually, ends with uh, questioning in business and questioning in life uh, chapters. In the introduction of the book, he answers the question of uh, why questioning. Uh, he explains in his research that designers, inventors, and engineers were expect- exceptionally good at questioning when they would solve problems or come up with ideas. The more he researched how innovations approach challenges, the more he noticed questioning as the common approach within their innovation process. He noticed that the breakthrough inventions, hot startup companies, or many other radical solutions could be traced back to a single or a series of questions. Eventually, he starts with uh, the, the, the chapter, The Power of Inquiry. He starts with a story of a young man named Van Phillips lost his foot during a water skiing. So at this moment, he asked himself, why should I settle for this? And asked why the industry simply can't make a better foot. In this part, Berger uh, highlights the interesting relationship questioning has with expertise. So he proceeds by stating that Phillips was in the best position to ask this question. He wasn't an expert in the field of prosthetics, and he wasn't planning to convince experts that he knew better was merely able to question the current status quo with the field of prosthetics because he wasn't an expert in prosthetics limited by its own expert knowledge. I mean, I suppose he did have insight, right? He lost his leg. Yeah, you could say that definitely. He knew that the prosthetic wasn't good enough because he had experience of the disability. So after questioning the industry uh, by Van Phillips and seeing that the industry didn't have a better foot, uh, Van Phillips took ownership of, of this question. Instead of asking why they can't make a better foot, he asked why I, I can't make a better foot. In this part, Berger highlights the importance of ownership in questioning. So Van Phillips realized um, that if he needed a better foot, he needed to understand the world of prosthetics. So he decided to start a study in the field of prosthetics. Um, after his study, he started working in a prosthetics labs in Utah. The study gave him the opportunity to understand why the current prosthetics are as they are. Uh, so besides his job, he started experimenting himself with prosthetic feet. He would uh, test it himself until he would create one which he can use without f- uh, failing and breaking the foot. After each failure, he questioned whether his next prototype would hold up better than the last 
one until he discovered one that didn't break and made him fall. The powder presents uh, the following question. What can questions do? So uh, this question touches the human part of questioning. He highlights the influence of questioning has on humans, what it really does when you start questioning. He gives examples of people who has experience in questioning, how they perceive the influence of questioning. So he talks about historian David uh, Hackett Fisher, who said questions are the engines of intellect. He quotes uh, Dan Rothstein from the Right Question Institute, who said uh, questions shine a light where you need to go. And also another interesting quote uh, he gave from Francis Peavy said, questioning is a lever used to pry open a stub lid on a paint. Uh, the author Firestein, uh, in his book Ignorance, right, uh, How It Drives Science, argues that one of the key scientific discoveries is the willingness of scientists to embrace ignorance and to use questions as a means of navigation through it to new discoveries. One good question can give rise to several layers of answers, can inspire decades-long searches for solutions, can generate whole new files of inquiry, and can prompt changes in entrenched thinking. Then Rothstein also points out that questions can start divergent thinking. It can lead you to more questions when you start questioning. However, he also says that eventually questioning can provide direction and focus. When you question a certain problem, you will start thinking divergently, so what do you think, Alex, uh, your experience uh, of questioning? Well, I was just thinking there that that quote from Feierstein, and he was saying one good question can give rise to several layers of answers and so on and so on, can inspire decades-long searches. Some people don't even want to go there, right? <laughs> Some people. Yeah, right. <laughs> Some people are just happy with the, with the solution that they have. But I suppose <laughs> it depends on the, yeah. you know, on the, on the individual. There is something, for me, there is something deeply purposeful about questions. And yeah, a good question can give rise to how am I going to try and answer this? And it will prompt you to do, to explore and to seek answers. It can open your mind because actually it's the answering of the question that becomes the, the journey, right? Or the destination. Yeah, and it's it, it interesting. Is is I'm I'm curious. Like, could you can you remember? I don't know if it's a valid question, but can you remember the day that you started questioning more instead of answering or just giving answers? Like, the reason I'm asking that is like, um, there were uh, I think several few, uh, several years ago, I I I I I didn't value questioning a lot. And I always assume that uh, when a question is pro, uh, when a question is made, or there is a challenge or a problem, the the to go place or the thing you need to have is the answers and not questioning. That's the point. If you already have a solution, you are asked a question. Right. the The problem is that we think we have the solution. Yeah, exactly. And I think that. If, for example, you live a life of plenty, you're born into a good home, you never have to worry about money, you never have to think about things like that, you're probably going to ask less questions Why? because what is prompting you? Right. Yeah, I can imagine that, definitely. So the example with Van Phillips is that he only thought about prosthetics when he lost a limb. If he hadn't lost a limb, he wouldn't have thought about prosthetics. So there is a connection between or a sort of overlap between the individual and the environment and a particular situation 
that causes people to think in such a way that it it becomes formulated as a question. Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely, it happened with Fem Phillips. And I think some people are probably more inclined to openness than not. You know, some some people will naturally question because it's part of their personality. So if you ask my mum, for example, she was saying I always I was always observing things and asking questions. Is it nature? Is it nurture? I, you know, I, I don't know. We all interface with the world in some way. We all we're all learning from the stimulus of the world from a young age, but but some of us uh, choose to a formulate questions and then b choose to pursue the answers to those questions in an obsessive way that leads to some sort of breakthrough, some sort of innovation, some sort of insight. And I think that's the point he's kind of driving at with this chapter, that in, the power of inquiry is that it can stimulate you to... Yeah, I remember that that's, uh, majority of the time when I would give answers to certain problems in my job, I would always be frustrated why it wouldn't work out. Right. But um, eventually I learned by by failing a lot and giving answers that maybe questioning would help you eventually uh, much better instead of giving answers and i learned on a hard way like uh, the power of inquiry where he writes about the that the fact that a questioning would lead you to more exploration instead of being, uh, like you said uh, people would already have the answer to a particular problem which is the case in many companies now in all of the, or oh, the example of Van Phillips, and then some of the examples that he quotes during the book, there is a catalyst. And for Van Phillips, it's obvious he's in this accident. He needs to. Uh, he wants his mobility back. He refuses to accept that the, you know, prosthetic that he's been given is is going to provide any way of quality of life, and that's what starts him up. Uh, on on the sort of journey and obviously there's a huge amount of work uh to to actually create that but it's that sort of individual response to the catalyst that helps to formulate the question and that's why inquiry is powerful it represents that experience you're forced to to try and find a solution to it because it's touched your life in some tangible or meaningful way yeah the personal experience what frustrated him, uh, Van Phillips, in an example of Van Phillips? It was really a frustration why he would, why he f- constantly fell from uh, from that uh, uh, prosthetic he gave, he was given by the hospital. That's right. Yeah. And in this chapter, like you said, he gives an, another example of uh, how Gatorade existed. Um, it, it wasn't um, more a frustration, but it was more a question like. Uh, the founder of Gatorade, Dwayne Douglas, uh, uh, asked himself, like, why aren't players urinating more after the games? <laughs> right. So this is so some football players, American football players, right? Yeah, exactly. They're, they're expending huge amounts of energy, working up a good sweat, but then, you know. And also drinking a lot. Drinking loads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, drinking loads, but, but never urinate. 
So exactly, like he 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 asked that question and eventually shared the question with the kidney professor, and eventually they they found out that that they that that the football players would lose lose a lot of water through sweat. So uh, they eventually experiment with several uh, drinks, uh, which could replace the electrolytes lost uh, through sweat, and that's how Gatorade eventually uh, came into existence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I ran a half marathon once, right? And in the training, I did like three months of training beforehand or something. And I kind of remember having exactly the same observation, <laughs> which is, I've just run ten miles. I've just drunk like two liters of water, <laughs> but I don't need to pee. And I remember thinking, this can't be healthy. Yeah, you know that's not that's not normal. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's funny. I mean, what I what I really liked about this particular chapter was anybody can question, which makes questioning feel like a very human thing to do. It's just how we engage with the environment. It's how we process what we don't understand right yeah and then it's if that's normal why do we stop questioning at some point yeah exactly and that's how he proceeds uh, within the next chapter the title is why we stop questioning and he, he starts with several subject questions like why do kids ask so many questions and how do we really feel about that why does questioning fall off a cliff can a school be built on questions? Why is entitled? Who is entitled to ask questions in class? Like when we're before we go to school, we're asking thousands of questions a day, right? Yeah. Or not thousands, hundreds of questions a day, and then at school we we learn not to question and to answer. Yeah, and just yeah to provide the answer. And he likens that idea to the the engagement problem. We become disengaged because we're just learning answers rather than coming up with questions and then trying to shape education around the pursuit of the answer to the question. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's also because the the history where how schools and educational system eventually uh, was created. It was created basically for factory workers. They needed some knowledge to do certain tasks or work. So they needed uh, answers, basically, or to understand certain rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that still applies to the current environment of educational system. Like small children are asking thousands of questions. They go to schools, which is based on uh, learning rules or learning uh, answers, uh, which leads to the question which he says, you know, why are we sending kids to school in the first place? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is it to cultivate their minds or is it just to learn the answers? And, well, it comes back to what we call the great education debates. Is education about self-actualization or is it about taking your part on the factory line? Because they're two totally different approaches to, to learning. A majority of the time I read the experiences of uh, other students. They assumed they needed a particular bachelor or master. After they start uh, their jobs, they're lost. They don't really know or they don't understand why they can't apply the answer they learned. And I, I'm not talking about, of course, uh, uh, medicine or something, but uh, the majority of studies you can do. Why they are not able to apply those answers they have uh, learned? Right. So that's that's an example. That's a very interesting uh, fact that still occurs in the 
modern day and age. I don't understand why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've done a lot of work with schools, and it's absolutely true. In, it questions drive engagement, and environment drives questions. So if you're creating the right environment for learning, then you will get good questions from the from the kids, which will lead to better learning. So in my background within museums and heritage, you know, the objects and the buildings and stuff are the stimulus for questions. And that's why the kids respond to it, because it's different and they're trying to understand, they're trying to build the mental model in their own minds about what is this and, and how does this fit in with everything else that I actually know. Right. Whereas quite often, and certainly in the UK at the moment, the kind of education that the government promotes is, is very much like, well, here's the answers. This is everything that you need to know. Heaven forbid you ever need to think during your life. Yeah. You know, I found it very interesting that in this, they're talking about the educator, uh, Deborah Mayer. So she, she turns the idea of education on its head by creating a school that's built on questions rather than on answers. It turns teaching exactly on its head because you, you essentially you're posing a problem to the kids and then they have to find a solution to that. And that's what you call inquiry-based learning. And it's how, it's how we all would like to learn because it's cross-curricular. Completely. And it forces you to take abstract concepts and then apply them in real life to come up with a solution, which is what you do in a, in a work situation. That's true. Whereas, unfortunately, too much of our school uh, our school life is based around, yeah, this is what you need to know about the causes of the First World War. Now tell me why <laughs> that's important. <laughs> and that, you know, that tends to be how, you know, tends to be how it's done. And then by the time you get to high school, you know, you look at the kids and you can see in their eyes they're totally disengaged because they don't have control over their environment. They don't have control even of of how they're approaching learning. Yeah. You know, because it's, I'm going to feed you some stimuli, now repeat it back to me. And whether they're five, six, seven, eight classes a day, that's how it is. Wow. In fact, one of the best teachers that I have worked with, I hired her to restructure some of our um, secondary school learning at, at the museum. I thought I'd done an okay job in doing it. And she, she came and she said, oh, well, Alex, this is all right, but actually you're miles behind where the current thinking is. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> she goes, well, you're not stimulating the inquiry in the students. We need to change it. And I got her to talk it through, and she was saying what we, what we really need is student-led learning. You're really just posing a challenge and you're allowing the kids to do their own learning. Right. And I got her to do an example, and we chose the most abstract thing that we could find in a, in a historical context. Mm. And we chose a book by a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, which is one of the great critiques of communism. And in, the, in one of the chapter, he writes like 93 ways to torture people. Wow. <laughs> I happened to be reading that because I was doing other research around torture for another project because torture happened at the Tower of London where I was working. Yeah. 
And I said, okay, I'm reading this. Now teach this to my management team or by using a student-led learning approach. And she did. Oh, wow. And all she did was photocopy different parts of the book and then said, right, here's three questions each for each of the four groups. I'm going to give you half an hour and then you're going to present back to me. And it worked. She was absolutely fantastic. And it was because it started with a question. Oh, wow. And that's the difference between, you know, a competent teacher who can stand at the classroom and a real expert a teacher who understood the cognitive functions that happen when learning happens. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's what he's really driving at in this sort of power of inquiry. We can be stimulated through questions. Now, in that case, obviously, she was coming up with the questions, but it was still powerful. But can you imagine how much more powerful it is if it's like Van Phillips and you're coming up with something that's genuinely life-changing and important. Yeah, it's interesting how you how you give the example of uh, uh, that teacher you hired and eventually made uh, the, the management uh, explore the subject itself uh, because of the question triggered them. It made them explore and eventually it wasn't a, a presentation like uh, this is about the torture. These are the ways uh, uh, of torture. So, guys, you have to. Yeah, here's a big long list of 93 ways to torture people. <laughs> exactly. It's becomes, then it becomes a one-way uh, lecture or presentation, uh, a communication, uh, uh, where they just listen and understand the subject because you told them. And now just posing the question, making them in working groups, makes them, forces them to explore the subject itself. Yeah, yeah. It's really beautiful how, how that uh, worked out. And I, I do remember also in my personal experience, um, I, I started early in my uh, teenage years even questioning a lot eventually even questioning my own religion my own culture which made which led me to have a lot of discussions at home but i do remember a, a video of uh, uh, an indian philosopher jidu krishnamurti um, an indian philosopher he had made a video or he gave a lecture about supreme intelligence and um, it was an interesting video it was a video of two hours but he gave the uh, he gave the answer. I gave an answer to the question how we could reach uh, supreme intelligence within the first two three minutes or something. He said that the answer to supreme intelligence isn't a model or a concept or or any other theory you probably have learned at uni, your uni, your own university. He gave the uh, the talk by the way at the at a U, U, uh, U.S. university. He said uh, the the an the answer to how we could reach supreme intelligence is by questioning everything, never stop never stopping uh, questioning, and um, he gave um, he said eventually that instead of just um, giving answers after uh, making after making a question is just questioning the questioning uh, the questioning the question eventually which will lead you to great insights and supreme intelligence and that was the i that inspired me so much that i started questioning about anything in my life eventually which led me to a lot of personal uh, uh challenges like why do i uh, uh why i'm raised as a muslim why i'm raised as an afghan why do i live here why do I, why am i even born 
why do I do the things that yeah, I exactly. do? Exactly. It was really a challenging period. Why? Because uh, at home, when I started questioning everything, the response was only answers. <laughs> <laughs> you... and well that's the point that he makes right is that is that questions become um socially unacceptable exactly. either at school or at home or certainly in the workplace they they become socially unacceptable because it becomes it's interpreted as challenging the power isn't it right and in in school and home and at business there's a very structured hierarchy about who's in charge. Well, definitely. And what the last thing you need is people who are going <laughs> to ask awkward questions. Exactly. That, that was the case in my, not only in my personal uh, experience at home, but also uh, at school. I remember I was at a uh, German uh, class and I had to, re- I had to learn, uh, I had to learn uh, words, German words. Suddenly, uh, the teacher gave us an assignment to learn uh, German words in the next uh, 60 minutes. So everybody opened their books and started learning, and my book was closed. I really didn't have the motivation to learn it. So suddenly, the, the teacher comes by and says, why is, why, why is your book closed and why aren't you learning? I, and I asked, them, I asked them, in my opinion, a genuine question. I said, could you convince me why I need to learn <laughs> <laughs> the German <Sure>. language? <laughs> Let alone the words or the grammar, whatever it is. And, and like you said, it wasn't accept- that question wasn't accept- acceptable. And he didn't accept the question. He said, literally, why is because I am the teacher? I'm telling you what you have to learn. And therefore, you are going to learn it. It's done deal. Or you're going to the principal. <laughs> that's a problem the poor teachers are cold face aren't they and they have a curriculum at a political level there's a policy which says these are the things that you need to teach and that's the way that it is and these poor teachers are then working within very tight parameters <laughs> exactly it's so tough for teachers i know that from my own experience of working with them but i also do know that the ones that are successful are the ones that are able to navigate within those parameters and sort of turn it on its head and give the students ownership. Going back to the Van Phillips, it was the same same thing, right? He's And you talked about it, he took ownership of that and that sort of drove him to try and, and answer the question, well, why are prosthetics so bad and why can't we have better ones? And in his book, Van Berger says he wasn't limited by the fact that he uh, wasn't a, a prosthetics expert. So I imagine that the prosthetic experts work in prosthetic companies where there would be a hierarchy and also based when, uh, with an assumption that questions aren't really welcome. It's majority of time it's the answers. We are a prosthetic company, therefore we know what prosthetics is and how it looked like. So the same social problem I see in the companies I've worked and currently work in, I remember a lot of experiences when I would make people angry or even frustrate them because I would question. And the majority of time, if there would be a problem in a meeting, I would ask like, okay, why is this happening? And because of the hierarchy and social context, 
it really wasn't acceptable to ask questions. And even I, I even got called by sometimes by my superiors and they would literally tell me like, why is those questions which you, <laughs> you, which you made in those meetings led the, to the fact that this guy was frustrated and eventually stopped working with us. Therefore, I would like to ask you <laughs> to change your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think last time we talked about my boss, right, who, who had fundamentally different assumptions about the way business should run than I did. And she would say, I want you to do this. And I'd be like, okay, but I need to ask you some questions about this, how, you know, just so I can get it clear in my own mind. Yeah, exactly. And after about the third or the fourth question, it would expose the errors in her thinking. Yeah. And rather than do what I did with this particular teacher, you know, said, okay, well, tell me what's wrong and let's find a way to fix it. She would say, look, Alex, what I want to see is X. Wow. And that was the end of the debate. And I would say, well, that's fine, but it's not going to work until we, because it's not addressing these particular issues that I'm trying to raise with you. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, what I want to see is X. (laughs) Just be like, okay. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's that's interesting, right? Yeah, I I remember the same um, in one of the companies I worked in. Uh, I was my one of my superiors was the director. He gave me the task to help uh, certain managers to improve their processes. And eventually I kept hearing his complaints about certain managers, like they are not performing as we agreed. They are not performing. They are not just showing results. They are not showing financial results, etc. And I had a difficulty in, in formulating. My intuition said there was something uh, here uh, which was unfair because I saw um, a lot of complaining from the superiors to, to to the other managers and so on and so so one day i remember i i he was complaining and eventually i, I said may i ask you something to the director and he said yes what do you want to ask i said is it fair to complain about the performance of managers when you never give them feedback or never spend time or money in their development and <laughs> he said, the first response was, I, I don't understand your question. What, what, do you, what, what was your question? And I, and I again, asked, my, asked the, the same question. And eventually he got angry. Right. He really got angry on me. And he eventually he was so pissed off that he left the room and he said, I, I, I'm busy. Oh, bye, wise. <laughs> <laughs> but I gave, but if, before he left, I gave me a lecture of one hour <laughs> why he thought that there was a bad question and this is the same problem again. Why my attitude has to change? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably the response that Van Phillips got about when he said this prosthetic limb is a waste of time, right? Yeah, I probably. I assume definitely that he would get the same response from the prosthetics experts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And when you think about it with that one, the people who designed the prosthetics limb probably were basing their expertise on how prosthetic limbs had been created for decades and decades. Right? If you think of people who lost a limb due to accident or war or something like that. Yeah. 
you know, they were literally in something that looked like what they had been lost, but completely lacked the functionality of what they had lost. Exactly. Here's Van Phillips going, well, it doesn't even, that might look like a leg, but it doesn't actually help me walk down the street. Yeah, exactly. What I want is a prosthetic that will help me walk down the street. And that's what he, that's what he goes on to do. He, he designs this fantastic prosthetic built of carbon fiber, right? It's the one that they run on, like a blade, because it can compress the same amount of energy. Exactly. And allows you to, the same outcome or the same utility that, that you get from, from a real leg, right? Yeah, and it triggers me to the, thought, to the theory of business which we talked about in our previous uh, podcast, Van Philips questioned the assumptions of the prosthetic industry. Um, the whole industry was based, uh, had, an, uh, had a certain assumptions, how uh, people who needed prosthetic limbs, uh, what the solution was. It was an assumption, assumption they had about how they would uh, provide them with prosthetic limbs. And eventually questioning those assumptions had led them eventually to show that their assumption was valid for maybe a period of time when technology wasn't that great or something. But eventually now the assumption, it wasn't the solution uh, for the current need of those people. They just didn't want to fall anymore. Right, right, right. And it questioned the whole system uh, around the prosthetics limbs, which led him eventually to a much more beautiful and functional uh, limb he could use. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I actually, when I read the book, I looked up how much those those cost. I mean, it's like ten, fifteen thousand dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. From, uh, from the company from Van Phillips? It may not have been his company, but it was somebody selling them. Wow! It's called the Cheetah because it's based on the back leg of a cheetah. Well, it, you know, it's carbon fiber and it's probably layered and da da da. It probably does quite cost quite a lot to make it. Yeah. But when you think about it. I mean, it's a lot of money, but also if that restores your your quality of life, yeah, it's a small price to pay. Definitely, price of a car or something. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think about my uh, my mum, for example, is blind. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time investing in technology for her that increases her quality of life. Yeah, and so she uses like Amazon almost for everything now. Yeah, she listened to audiobooks, which she gets from uh, Audible. She has Alexas in every room, so she can always get the time. She can always get the news. She can always get the weather. She gets a music through that. She gets a radio through that. I asked her the other day because I was ordering something for her. Like, is it worth it? And she was like, "It's worth paying twice what it is because for me, the quality of life is is so much more improved because I'm not fighting with." things that i used to take for granted wow so for her just being able to say you know alexa do this that and the other yeah it saves her so much time and effort and frustration of trying to deal with a remote control or knobs on a radio or you know or whatever it is yeah definitely I suppose when go back to the book, it, it's interesting that 
he he raises examples of people who have done these profound innovations so van phillips but he also talks about sebastian thrun who created udacity which is one of the first e-learning platforms successful e-learning platforms he talks about clayton christensen who comes up with the idea of disruptive innovation just from answering questions so all these great sort of innovations and and they all or some of them rather have some profound experiences not all as profound as van phillips right but they have some profound experience which causes them to ask the question well why is it why is it like that so then in the rest of the book he he then talks about well how do we structure how do we teach ourselves to ask questions yes basically the first question is uh, why he talks about the the personal experience why are we experiencing what we are experiencing now it's basically the basic question people ask when they are frustrated or they need something else which is the basis of the their exploration to new op- new uh, solutions it's the observation isn't it yes it's the fact that something is incongruous with our lives right it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense to us in some way or something yeah exactly so he says that we we naturally we start with questioning why and eventually in the exploration phase after defining like the problem or or what the the question why we are experiencing certain things undesirably he says that in order to explore uh, solutions to the problem itself the question what if is a start of a part of a question like what if we could change it what if we could do it differently to not be any more frustrated that is the second part of the uh, of the model itself and uh, eventually uh, after for example like van phillips asked, uh, asked himself like what if we could uh, build another prosthetic limb instead of uh, uh, using a limb that we would make us f- fall he explored the the how itself, the the method how to reach eventually the what if uh, as the answer for the why. So the third question of the model he proposes is the how. The how could we reach eventually the solution uh, which we desire for the for the undesirable uh, situation or the problem itself. And in his book, he says that this is basically a summary or or basically a simplified questions based on uh, uh, already known models, for example, design thinking or or any other innovation uh, framework, which all starts with framing the problem, exploring ideas or solutions, and then eventually testing them out and experimenting with them to find the solution. It's perhaps simplistic, but not in a, not in a negative way. So, you know, we've all been through countless trainings about design thinking and innovation process and but actually this sums it up why is something like this way what if we could do something different how can we how can we actually deliver it and i really quite like that and he does sort of say that this isn't a set process it's not like we just have a why section a what if section and then a how section it's more complex than that just sort of say it's a way to just to group our sort of thinking yeah exactly i agree with that and it definitely is a simplified uh, version of all those models because all those different models had 
small differences with each other and different steps and different techniques and methods to eventually find a solution to a particular problem. For example, if we see look to design thinking, it's based on, on five steps. And if we look to the five whys, it's, it's basically only why. It was always for me challenging where, which model I should use for my, to, to find the solution for a problem. And I agree with you that this model of uh, Berger, it really summarizes all the models, basically starting with why, why uh, questioning the current undesirable situation or problem, whatever it is, and then exploring the solution and eventually finding out how to do it. And beneath each of these three simple questions, I think you could uh, stick models and frameworks and techniques. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, there's always a trigger question or a, or a certain objective or whatever it is that's the why the what if is the is the opening out we're trying to find solutions and the how then is the one that you sort of bring it back in again to agree on the on a solution but this is also where i sort of have some struggles with the book because it feels like he yeah he then takes people's life experience and then condenses it in to fit his three question model. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the, the, the Edwin Land one. Yeah, that's true. Around the development of the Polaroid, which came because his daughter said, well, why do we have to wait for the pictures? Exactly. Well, he spent years yeah. afterwards, literally years afterwards, coming to a, a successful conclusion about well, what's the what if and how does it work and all that sort of stuff, you know. And he presents it simplistically in a, in a couple of paragraphs. And, you know, Edwin Land was a genius, a genius of his time, really. You know, fantastic entrepreneur and a scientist. Yeah, yeah definitely. And and I agree with you. He gave also the example of Netflix, uh, uh, how, how the founder even, uh, first uh, questioned uh, why he he has to bring back videos uh, uh, to Blockbuster and why he has to to pay a lot of uh, fees. And and exactly, I agree with you. The fact that this uh, this model of his isn't a, a perfect solution because if Netflix or Polaroid ask themselves initially, like why we are doing this as we are doing it, uh, the way we are doing it, it doesn't didn't give them directly the answer. It was a starting question, basically, a starting question of their journey, eventually solving the like you said, the what if and the how, which eventually lead to a Polaroid uh, product or a Netflix uh, business model. It sort of reminded me a bit of, you know, when you watch a movie or a TV show where they have to come up with a solution really quickly. Oh, this is what the problem is. What if we create a nuclear-powered whatever? <laughs> and then it's, a, then it's a montage shot of blackboards and trying things out and da da da, da. And 30 seconds later, they've come up with the perfect solution. And I kind of felt his framework was a bit like that. Yeah, it, it, it's not a working framework, but they are they are good reminders of what you are trying to do through your innovation process. You are trying to articulate and answer a question. Yeah, that's true. And you, you're trying to find a way to do that and and realize it. And that's good. And he does say, you know, we need to step back in order to move forward. And I think the questions are a good way of stepping back 
touching base with some of our assumptions, questioning why those assumptions are still valid, what what could be different, and so on and so on. Exactly, and 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 in relation to that, in his next two chapters called "Questioning in Business" and "Questioning in Life," he d- deep dives in exactly what you just said. Um, how this model can be used in business and in personal uh, environment. Uh, so in, in, in the questioning in business, he goes deeper into to the exercise of questioning what it could lead companies to and uh, what value it has in companies itself. And as we already shared and uh, still experience myself uh, in our company, the, the, more, the attitude is more like answers. For certain problems in a company, we still hire... Um, and I see other companies also, they steer higher consultants with the assumption that they know the answer, they know the f- quick fix to a certain problem of, our, of ours so, so we can make more money or make again money. So that is the current assumption within the companies and definitely this model can help uh, in the sense making them aware that to understand why certain things doesn't work, continuously trying the same thing is by starting questioning. It's like, why are we doing, why are we hiring the same consultants or the uh, or consultants in the first place? Or even what he proposes in this chapter, what if our company didn't exist? Right, yeah, I like that Yeah. Yeah, I really like that also. <laughs> in most cases, nobody would notice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. That, that's an interesting question to understand the real value of your company if if you <laughs> didn't exist. Like, would would anyone, any company, or any uh, uh, would would they experience problems if you didn't exist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough to give you existential crisis. I mean, he talks about Clayton Christensen and the disruption theory. Yeah. The question he he sort of forces into it is, you know, why did it take a business professor in order to ask that question about why are good businesses being disrupted? You know, why couldn't the businesses themselves actually see that? And for him, it's an example of that sort of stepping back and, and asking sort of core questions, really. I'm not sure in this case... What Warren Berger is offering that's different to what we talked about last time with the theory of the business with Peter Drucker. Well, uh, that's a good point. That's a fair point. Uh, Peter Drucker also talked about exactly uh, questioning your assumptions, and and in the uh, in the book of Ber- Van Berger, uh, Warren Berger, you can see that he talks again about questioning the questioning in business but questioning the basics of what what the decisions or the strategy is based on within the business like it comes down basically to the assumptions of the business itself which lives in the business itself amongst the people i suppose it's all helping right it's all it's another perspective i think yeah you're right yeah i suppose the wider point that when berger interviews christensen yeah and he, and he says, well, why did you come up with it? And the point that Christensen makes is that business school doesn't teach you to question things. Yeah, exactly. And that's the that's probably the wider point that's of value, whether you're using Berger or whether you're using Drucker, right? Yeah. 
Well, this chapter really made me think, asking, uh, made me think about questioning in, in my own role now as a business analyst. My own role, majority of time, um, when people would approach me for a certain problem or for, yes, for a certain problem, they would assume I would know the answer. Like, this is the problem. And they would even tell me, like, this is the answer. And therefore, I need you to ha- your help to achieve this. Yeah. And and to be honest, after reading this book uh, um, a few months ago when you recommended it, I started questioning more in the sense like uh, whenever, even when they would say, even if the management would say like, this is the answer, I would even question like, like why do you think this is the answer? Have you tested it? Have you experimented it? Uh, uh, or why do you think uh, uh, this is the solution for those people? You assume, have you talked to them? And eventually, out of experience, I am already uh, see the true value of questioning, uh, which is making others uh, think about their own assumptions and eventually um, leading them to find the most more appropriate um a process to uh, 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 which could lead them to a more relevant or more appropriate uh, answer to a particular problem. Yeah. Does he does he talk about five whys in this chapter? Yeah, in his book, he t- uh, mentions it several times. The five whys. Yeah. So so and that's it. Was that a Toyota model or certainly a Japanese model? Where you you're not just saying the first answer is the right answer that you're drilling down to find out what the real cause of the problem or indeed what the success might actually be. And I really like that because I think just when you were talking there about business analysis, the initial answers are usually the symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. And I think that 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 ability to question, therefore, is is really really crucial to to success. Yeah, definitely. And now in my, I experience sometimes that um, in in relation to the social context, when I uh, questioned uh, a few months ago more uh, because I see the value of questioning, I I frustrated a lot of people, but I am now. Um, um, questioning it differently before starting questioning in a meeting after they've presented a particular problem or discussed a particular problem i would say that i would i'm going to play now uh, the devil's advocate so uh, and i would see people in their behavior like getting exciting getting excited to start questioning it and um one of my i don't know who but someone recommended me to do uh, explicitly say to them that you're going to play the role of devil's advocate to um, to question the problem, the subject itself. People would understand that uh, the questioning isn't uh, directed to their own personal, uh, to their own, to their themselves. It's more directed to the subject itself, which gave which gives me gave me more room uh, to question the subject itself. And. And, and beforehand, it was majority of time if I started with questioning, they would uh, or get frustrated or get angry or just stop the questioning. <laughs> and that's also true when you use Lego Series Play because you're building a model out of Lego. You see, you're asking a question. People build models as a, as a response to the question. And then you're actually interrogating the model 
rather than interrogating the person. And that's the same thing that you're going through when you're playing the devil's advocate. You're, you're saying, I'm not, I'm not questioning you. You know, we're, we're creating this sort of artificial game where we're, where we're engaging with the questions uh, or the solutions uh, in a slightly different way. Uh, yeah, that, that certainly works, I think, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting one that I use currently in my, in my job. Uh, but also in my personal life, I must say, because sometimes if I talk to family members or friends, I because I am naturally a, a questioner and more in, in my personal environment than in, in business, I tend to question, uh, question certain ideas or certain decisions, especially with family-related cultural, uh, uh, um, cultural uh, events or something. Uh, I would question why we should do that. Why are our, our values in this? Why are our values uh, like that when we when people in our family or friends are frustrated about it? And and I must say that whenever it's much more difficult to play the devil's advocate in a personal environment. <laughs> because uh, blood is thicker than water, isn't it? That's why. <laughs> That's why that is. Yeah. And it always becomes about something else. It is about what you did to me back in the day or, you know, what you said to me. Is this about this? We've already been through this. <laughs> exactly. And and Van Berger uh, also um, talks about it in its uh, fifth chapter, which is the last chapter about questioning yeah. for life. He, he, he starts... Um, uh, he starts talking about the, the value of questioning uh, in uh, your own personal environments, uh, within yourself, about yourself. And he, in, in the beginning of the chapter, he, he gives a, 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 a list of, uh, of uh, questions like, uh, why should we live the questions? Why are you climbing the mountain? Uh, what if we start with what we already have? What if you made one small change? What if you could not fail? These are interesting questions which he starts with about the the, the value of questioning in its uh, per, in the personal journey. There's nothing like a question to cut to your core. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I agree with that. <laughs> well, it's not about questioning your assumptions, is it? It's about trying to find your true self or your true purpose or your true perspective or you know it's those sorts of things which is is much more much more powerful yeah that's true and i definitely agree that it's, it's not only about the assumptions i remember my coaching sessions i used to have uh, for several years uh, uh, to be honest several coaches that would uh, help me uh, in my own uh, personal uh, development and Exactly like you said, sometimes they would pose simple questions like why would you uh, do this or why would you do that? It would really touch my core. <laughs> yeah. And um, in this, this chapter, what I thought about was in personal life, I assumed majority for many years that uh, if it's a personal question like why I'm doing what I'm doing or what is the purpose of my life or what we used to talk about the the your 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 purpose your life's mission or your life's purpose, I learned that 
um, that questions doesn't have to be have um, have a definitive answer. It's like you can keep questioning it. It's more like a fluid answer. It's not the final answer. It's like the next answer, and eventually, with questioning, which help, which can help you to explore more about yourself. Right. So it's more like a river. Exactly. You're sort of winding your way around the river. Yeah, that's a good way to say it, I think. I, I agree with that, definitely. I mean, I found that this chapter resonated more with me than probably the rest of the book. I suppose I, I found with the business section, as like, well, you know, there's a lot of tools that help you question things out there. And, exactly. You know, and also there's a lot of frameworks to help sort of develop ideas and things like that. Yeah, I kind of get this, but... For me, it was it was more about the questioning yourself and being not only open to questions but to critically evaluate your answers can have a profound impact in your life in terms of your life's direction or career choice or you know not only the big things but also tend to be small things that add up but but gives you steer and confidence that you're doing what's right for you at the right time and so on and so on. And I said that what I took from it was, was that actually for me, it was the personal messages from the book questioning personally. I thought that I found more useful. I had the same experience. I must say, I agree with you that uh, there are a lot of tools and techniques which can help you uh, question in business, but the personal one, yeah, for many years, and I'm still questioning my own purpose and own mission. And it really triggered me again, like, like uh, keep on questioning, take a step back, uh, take a pause and start questioning about yourself. Well, because it's, I'm still busy with it, I'm still questioning my own purpose and my own mission and my own uh, uh, sub personal subjects. It also resonated with me a lot to just explore more about myself. The part that really resonated with me with this was about he talks about uh, different approaches, self-help approaches, or whatever it is. And uh, and if you talk to people and ask them, what they tend to tell you is what they know. So I, I've been through this. I rang up a whole bunch of people that I know and said, "What do you think I should work at for the rest of my life?" And they all told me what was in their mind at the time, rather than anything of meaningful engagement with my problem yeah and in the end i was like this isn't actually helping it's just confusing me even more <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he he does say that that's what happens so the value of questioning of being bold enough or courageous enough or honest enough authentic enough to ask difficult questions of yourself and be true to yourself enough to answer them is a lot more valuable than endless range of self-help approaches or whatever it might be. And also being patient. He talks about also sticking on sticking with uh, questions more than we are used to. Majority of time, in my personal experience, I've also experienced that that we pose, we 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 ask something, and like we assume that we have, we are going to explore a bit of time the question and eventually find an answer and, and, and after a few weeks if we have uh, a a answer that's the answer or we let go of the question like he 
Berger also highlights the fact that we need to be patient, especially in our personal uh, environment, uh, questioning our personal uh, subjects. We need to be patient too, because it doesn't have uh, have a direct answer to it. It's much more complex than a business environment. Right, right. It's true. Yeah, and I, I actually found his his insight in this chapter far more valuable, even authentic, more personal than it, than the rest of the book. To be honest, it felt like it was more of a more of a personal message from him rather than I felt some of the rest of the book was sort of squeezed in into certain markets where it might be helpful but actually the real value of the book is is questions are a mirror and you hold it up to yourself and you know i think very few of us really like to look at ourselves in a mirror longer than a glance or two and questions force us to to actually do that and there's some value in 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 that analysis if we are able to get in the right mindset to actually do that hmm. that's a nice one questions on mirrors basically that's really a nice one because i can imagine that um that he also experienced questioning himself uh the change eventually which had led them uh, which has led him to a change and also in business because i imagine if you would question yourself uh, um and and eventually with the question if it leads to a particular change then you would probably express that change also in in the business environment yeah that, that's true that is absolutely true yeah interesting one yeah definitely an interesting chapter especially for 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 the fact that um we again see the the the, the fact that it comes down to the perception of the human um in this book also um uh, the which is the assumptions we have about questioning like he talks about uh, how people are being raised or being educated uh to learn to give answers instead of questioning it and in this in this in his book he give many examples how um questioning has more value than answers and how uh, society and uh, many systems or organizations are keep uh, are keeping uh, the assumption of uh, having the answers instead of questioning right uh, it's a different way to think about it isn't it it's we assume that our identity is shaped by knowing more and i think his point is that our identity is shaped through the engagement process uh, engaging with the world and the questions then shape that engagement process. So, you know, the examples that he cites in the book, you know, all the way through the book, he has these little paragraph sort of summaries of people who have asked a question and it's led to their some great insight or innovation or business, or whatever. Yeah. The outputs, Edwin Land's, Polaroid or Sebastian Thrun's you know, Audacity or Clayton Christensen's Disruption Theory or back to the start with Van Phillips's Prosthetic Limb. Yeah. 
they are totally harmonized with the with the question you know the question shapes their identity it shapes their life it shapes how they engage with the world and and that's why i sort of came to the conclusion that questions are really this personification this articulation of a much deeper set of insights that we have but we can only sometimes articulate them by going through some event that brings those insights to our attention and in van phillips case it was a very extreme example right he was injured and 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 it was obvious yeah. but for others probably for a sebastian throne and nudacity it wasn't quite so so obvious but was probably a personification of who he is as a person he's an educator he's a technologist and so the question was this product of his abilities his interests his expertise and that's why questioning is so important we need to be able to develop that skill because if we can articulate the question about our own identity through an exploration in a subject then it gives us a way into our life's mission or our work or how we are going to engage with the world or the impact that we want to have on the world so the question is really this articulation of so many deep feelings about ourselves and insights about how we engage with the world and so i think although i have criticisms with with the book you know it's a bit simplistic and so on and so on and i don't really buy into the the three questions as a working strategy the ability to question is clearly of huge importance to ourselves as individuals and because it's important to ourselves as individuals it helps us to articulate the impact that we could have in the world if we choose to answer this question yeah that's a good way to say it well yeah i agree with that definitely i i while you were saying like questions questioning other subjects which can add to your personal identity and eventually help you with your personal mission i i recognize that a lot in my own personal experience questioning in business and questioning in my work like questioning in my work helped me to explore certain subjects more deeply uh, uh more thoroughly which eventually helped me uh also answer the question why i like that why I like those uh, subjects or why I like those explorations, why I like to explore this subject particularly more parallel to the to the business question I uh, asked even, uh, initially. So, so, so eventually it definitely added to uh, back to the, my personal questions, why I like what I like, why I do what I do, what, I, what my mission is and purpose is. Definitely as to the personal identity. I agree with that 100%. His broad thesis, I think, is a good one. Yes, definitely. You know, we need more questions rather than answers. That's, I think, definitely. You know, the, the, the people who have the answers, it's their answers. It's not our answers. Yeah, and it's subject to time. It's subject to the right environment. It's subject to the right... I don't know, people exactly like you said, it's related to a single static uh, uh, answer, whatever it, a question, whatever it is. So I think definitely that 
the main message of this book is definitely the fact that um, questioning, like you said, has more value than answers. And it shows many examples how it led people to great companies, it led people to great inventions, it led people to breakthrough inventions or, or personal uh, insights. It's really uh, nice to understand the value of questioning in, in personal and in business. Um, besides that, I think it's uh, definitely a, a must read for anyone uh, who is busy to explore or find solutions building their startups or even in their own current jobs uh, trying to find their own way or trying to find solutions, wouldn't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that his conclusions are good ones. You know, ask yourself questions and like you were saying, stick with it. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, uh, because over time you will find answers and that will drive your life in some way and and just but keep that alive keep asking questions and so on and so on you know it's a very good reminder that that you're in charge of how you perceive the world that you are able to ask questions that you are able to articulate things that other people can't if you just stick with it you stick with that question and keep pursuing it yeah, definitely. And definitely a must read. And and uh, finally, uh, maybe we can end with a quote, quote of Albert Einstein, which he says, like, if I had an hour to solve a problem in my life dependent on the solution, I would spend the first 55, meaning, 55 minutes determining the proper question to to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. It's interesting that this is such a such a uh, uh, such a, a great expert in the field of physics was uh, ha- would say this, but the educational system or the environment would just yeah, I don't know maybe don't value this or understand it differently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I don't know when Einstein said that, but if you think about how easy knowledge is to find nowadays, yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, you know, we both live in Western Europe. Books are cheap. You can access the same stuff or just of it on the internet for free. We we have knowledge everywhere, and I think the value of the question is directing the the utility of that knowledge. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, definitely that. And besides that, the majority of answers, like you said, are online. And it comes down to the ability to, like Einstein say, says, the, to ask the proper question, then eventually to gain the, the next insight you want. And that you can't find online or in any book. Hi, Alex here. I'm back to close out this episode of the Innovation Book Club with a few prompts and questions to take your learning further. Before we start, however, here's a quick note about why we're actually doing this. We believe that the value of learning is not in knowledge acquisition. Its value lies in the reflection process. When you judge the value of the knowledge that you've been exposed to, you understand how that analysis changes your view of the world and then ultimately how that knowledge and understanding increases both your capacity and capability to engage with and shape the world around you. So to that end, what we've done is we've 
come up with a few questions to help you reflect on what you've just heard and to try and push you on with your own innovation learning journey. So here they are. Number one, why do you think Berger states that questions are now more valuable than answers? Number two, when thinking about the innovation process, how is Berger's why, what if, how framework a useful guide? Number three, what's the question that you constantly return to? And is it a why, what if, or a how question? These questions are also in the podcast notes together with additional links if you'd like to read or watch something else related to this episode. Good luck with your answers and let us know how you get on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Innovation Book Club. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you can do three things to help us grow our audience. First of all, please leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps to feed the algorithm. Second, share this episode with your friends and colleagues if you think they would benefit. And finally, if you'd like to listen to all future episodes of the Innovation Book Club as soon as they're available, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, take care and we'll be back soon. Mm -hmm.